This is the Black Hall Podcast with Ryan Millsap. Georgia has film and television production. It also has the digital gaming business. Let's face it, Georgia is redefining what success looks like in the world of entertainment. Ryan Millsap has seen it all firsthand. The real estate entrepreneur recognized opportunity and founded Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, creating one of the country's leading movie studios. But that was yesterday. Like all great entrepreneurs, wanderlust sets in. Ryan's next foray into the entertainment business could change the landscape in film and television. Nietzsche said, in heaven, all the interesting people are missing. You'll find a lot of them on the Black Hall Podcast with Ryan Millsap. Welcome. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast on location at Momocon. Right now we have a guest, Renee Cooper, who's the Senior Media Director here at Momocon. Renee, welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here and for you guys to be here. And today we also have my wife joining us, Brittany Millsap. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. So, Renee, tell us about uh, how Momocon's gone the last couple of days. Yeah, it's been incredibly exciting to see people rolling in. Uh, Thursday, we saw the super fans who came in day one and were waiting in line to get down into the exhibitor hall. Friday's definitely been a buildup towards the afternoon. We've had more and more people coming through. I get my kind of window of the view of people coming from registration, going down into the exhibitor hall, and then kind of a window view of what's on the on the convention floor. But it's been a steady stream in, and I understand since it's our first official year back, there's probably a lot of growing pains, a lot of new things people are learning about where to park, how to get here. Registration has been doing their best, has been doing an amazing job at getting all these people coming through who pre-registered, who've been holding on to tickets for the last two years, getting them on site as quickly and efficiently as possible. So uh, it's definitely been exciting and a big buzz of excitement and, and, and um, yeah, just just a buzz of energy that's coming through here. Uh, and I know today's going to be our biggest day uh, <laughs> throughout the whole weekend. How many people are coming to Momocon this year? We anticipated before the con started. I don't have uh, numbers of right now, but up to 40,000 or exceeding 40,000 people. So that's registered attendees. That's not counting feet on the ground. That usually turns out to be about 120,000, just turnstile sort of people who are coming in out through the weekend. That's incredible. Yeah. And you were talking about the different elements of Momocon with anime, yeah. gaming. Did I hear you say WWE? Yep. We have a wrestling stage this year. We have wrestling right down at the stage. You can see live wrestling happening. I think they have where you can get involved with it. I wouldn't throw a chair without permission, but they do have the, the ability to kind of like see that performance on our floor. And this is one of the first years that it's been like a really big focus but a lot of the, the directors who've come through every year are huge WWE fans and huge wrestling fans. So it's just an element of fandom that only makes sense to tie into our multi-fandom event. But the core of fandom is really anime, would you say? That was the start. So Momocon started as something called Anime Oteku on the campus of Georgia Tech uh, by uh, Jess Merriman, who is the current con chair as well. And it was like 200 people at the convention uh, or at the, the rec center of the school who were doing panels, doing screenings, talking and watching anime, uh, playing some video games. So now about 16, now, now numbers are weird, but about 16, 17 years later, we have 40,000 people across this 750,000 square foot space. 
So anime is where it started, but we do have a lot of voice actors who voice very popular uh, American animation. They do the English dub for a lot of anime. And gaming, I would say, has been the most explosive part of the convention. Most of the, almost half of the gaming expo floor that we have is dedicated to all types of gaming. So there's the arcade and classic style area. There's Japanese import games that we have like DDR and uh, this like flip a table game or like the drum game. We also have a tabletop area so people can go in and play Dungeons and Dragons. They can play Werewolf if they like to. Settlers of Catan. Like there's everything from analog and paper maps up to the most high-tech digital interactive games that you could play. Then we also have a whole esports stage where people can compete and win actual money or just casually play with their friends for having that level of like, hi, I went over you. So we have a, a lot of area of this has gone into the gaming space too. Renee, thanks for joining us. It's been great to have you. I appreciate taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're off, I think, to the floor next. So thanks, Renee. No problem. We'll see you there. We've got uh, Thrandor coming onto the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Here we go. Excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I am told that you are a legend oh, of wow. cosplay. I, I, I appreciate that sentiment. Uh, I would say my reputation precedes me, but thank you. <laughs> Tell me about some of that background. Like, when did you start doing this? And Gosh, I've been doing this since 2013, and my first ever convention was DragonCon, actually, here in Atlanta. And I had never cosplayed before. I had sewn, I have a degree in fashion design, and my friend invited me to Dragon Con. I showed up in a costume, and the results were, people were just freaking out. I was dressed as Thranduil from Lord of the Rings, and people were just losing their minds. Like, they, I couldn't walk five feet without people stopping and taking my picture. And I was addicted to that. So now I do it on a regular basis. I'm a guest at Momocon this year. It's my second time. And I've guested at AWA. I was a cosplay judge at C2E2 last December. So it's kind of a part-time side hustle, if you will, now. Yeah, it's kind of evolved. <laughs> well, your, your outfit looks amazing. Thank you. Tell me about this one. So this is uh, based on artwork by Sunset Dragon, an artist on Instagram, Princess Celestia from My Little Pony. And people actually have been recognizing it, which has been wonderful, because I wasn't expecting that. They recognize the sun, because that's her emblem on the pony. I do not watch My Little Pony. I don't. But I can appreciate the artwork, and I loved it, and I wanted to do it. And it took me about a week to put this all together. So, yeah. That's amazing <laughs> you did that fast. Well, I will say the, the dress is bought, but everything else I, I did throw together in a week. So, yes. Sometimes speed builds, you know? So how often are you at a conference like this? Uh... Every couple of months, I would say. I have a full-time job, so I can't do this as much as I would like. Uh, also, it's, to be very fair, like, this is very taxing. Like, dressing up like this and putting costumes together like this, it's, it's a lot of work. So outside of a 40-hour job, I really only have so much time to dedicate to doing this. So every couple of months is just fine. Well, you have to love it. <laughs> I do. No, I love it. And that's also why people tell me all the time, oh, you should do costumes for movies. And I've done other costumes other than this, obviously, I've done like Glinda from The Wizard of Oz, and I did Stepmother from Cinderella, but Kate Blanchett's character, and people see the quality of my work, and I appreciate it, but I know that costuming is not for me for a professional level because 
I would lose the love. So tell me about some of the other costumes, some of your favorites that you've done over the years. Glinda is my pride and joy. So if you've ever seen the 1939 film, Wizard of Oz, Glinda comes down in a bubble, bro. Uh, <laughs> and I just love that costume since I was a kid. I mean, that movie's my favorite movie since I've been four years old. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Who, me? I'm not a witch at all. My grandmother used to show it to me when she would babysit me. And I loved Glinda, I wanted to be Glinda, and now I am Glinda. So it took me on and off about three years to put that costume together. And fun fact, I'm actually Instagram connected now to the jewelry company that made the brooch the actress wore on set, and they measured the brooch for me to give me dimensions to make it myself. So, yeah. What's your Instagram? Uh, my Instagram is thranduart.cosplay. So follow me on the socials. And um, I, and that one, and then Lady Tremaine, which is a lesser known character, not as popular. When they remade Cinderella live action, Disney did it in 2015, Kate Blanchett played the stepmother. And when she steps out of this carriage, she has this amazing traveling outfit on. And I, in the movie theater, I was just like, wait, I need that in my life. And so I immediately worked on that and, and that became something that was just a very dear piece to me, and it actually was my first major competition piece that I won. I won Western Championship out in Seattle at Emerald City Comic Con with that costume. So. so while you're here, what kind of things, what kind of events will you do? So I did a panel yesterday about transformations with me, and it was about just the journey that I take through cosplay and costuming and my process and how I think through my costumes and tips and tricks, crazy things that I do. Like, for example, if I can't find a fabric, specifically like right now, like this, this fabric is actually used to be white, but I used a specific spray paint to color it this way. Um, other things like that, and then just kind of how cosplay can be maddening and wonderful and the best thing ever and then also the worst thing ever at the same time because it's a hobby, right? It's not a job. So you have to like be able to put it down and like say, I'm done for the day and not stress over it, but then you come back to it like the next hour. <laughs> but so that panel was yesterday. Today I have a panel with my friend Beverly, who's also a guest here. Her name is uh, Down In Creative Studios on Instagram and she is an incredible foam and prop maker, and so her and I are doing a pre-judging panel on how to be with judges when you're being pre-judged in a costume contest, because you only have about five minutes when you're being pre-judged. So it's very, very quick. What does that mean, pre-judged? So, like, right now, they're judging the costume competition for this evening. So the judges have five minutes with each contestant to look at their costume, flip the seams, ask them questions, the contestants can tell you anything about it, and then they leave. So I've done that, Beverly's done that, and so we're trying to give back to the community and say, if you're doing this from a competition point of view, these are some tips and tricks on how to effectively talk to a judge in five minutes or less. Because the judge is not just judging the way the costume looks, but the way the costume is actually made. Absolutely. And I will say, last night we had the showcase, I emceed that here at Memocon, and that was just the, it's called the closet cosplay showcase because you can buy things for it, but the craftsmanship, which is tonight, is exactly that. It's the one where they judge you on how it's made. So we will go in there and like look under the seams and see if you finish things and look at the, the foam work and the paint job and on the makeup, everything. We take it all into consideration. So it's intense. <laughs> it really is. Well, we'll look you up on Instagram. Please. Would you say it again? Thrandwart. Thrandwart.cosplay. Thrandwart.cosplay. Absolutely. Well, Thrandwart, appreciate it. Thanks Thank for taking you. the time. Enjoy the rest of the time at MomoCon. Thank you. I will. You have a great day.
All right, well, Charles Piner's joining us. He's uh, with the 501st Legion. What is the 501st Legion? We are an international costuming group that represents Star Wars costumes. So we go out to charity events, we go out to conventions, we go to all kinds of events, like schools and everything, just dress up in plastic armor and have fun. Amazing. So what are you dressed up as today? Actually, this is my uh, Rebel Legion costume, but uh, this is a Poe Dameron. And how many guys are here from the 501st? We got all weekend. We probably got about 100 people signed up here. Is that right? We've got people you know, running our table. we got people in kit, everything. So, How did you get involved? Somebody recruited me to be a Jawa, and that's how I got here. And so then who are you here with today? I'm actually dressing up as my Commander Cody from Episode 3. Got it. But, I mean, did you come with a group? Are you guys meeting up? How's the 501st work? So we have a table down in the vendor hall. Okay. And we also have this thing called Blaster Trooper where we kind of, you know, do a little charity thing where you let uh, kids come up with Nerf guns, shoot at people in armor, hopefully the darts stick to them. Yeah, we have everybody set up down there. So, Now, are you from Atlanta or did you come from out of state to come to the conference? I'm from Atlanta, yes. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm actually the local commander here for this garrison. Incredible. Yep. And then is there a 501st gathering every year? Like, do you guys have your own conference? Not really, unless we do have what's called a uh, Legion Bash at Celebration, which is a semi-annual convention. We also have here every year for DragonCon, we have what's called the Legion Mixer, mm. which is essentially a invite party for just Legion members to kind of get together, hang out, and talk, and everything. I bet there's a lot more than talking that goes on. There can be. Come on. I mean, you get the, hey, get the Legion from all over I'm the I'm not world. giving away all our secrets. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Of course not. I don't even know the secret passcode. Do we have one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So have you been here for the last two days? Yes, I have. I've been here since Thursday. What do you think is the best day at Momocon? Thursday, because there's not a lot of people here. <laughs> and then it gets busier Friday, busier Saturday. Oh, yes. We're expecting big crowds on Saturday. So. And now when you see somebody who's dressed up like a Star Wars character, will you try to recruit them into the 501st or find out if they're part of the 501st? Always. Yeah. That's good. So you're always growing the Legion. Oh, yeah, we're, we're always active at recruiting. What's the process of recruitment? So the process is basically, if you have a kit, we have a thing called costume standards. Because since we are a 501 person, we do represent Star Wars for Lucasfilm, we have to build our costumes up to a certain standard. So everything has to look like it came off the screen or off the comic book page or off the, you know, wherever the visual media is. Once you have your costume ready, you take your photos, you submit them. We have what's called a... Costume judges, basically, who will look at your costume, make sure it looks good. If it looks great, you get approved, you get a number, and then you're in the Legion. So you're assigned a number, just like a Star Trooper. Yeah, the numbers actually started, uh, I believe, the, in the original Star Wars, you heard TK-421. TK-421, why aren't you at your post? That was the very first time you heard that number. So now the original numbers for the Legion started with basically two digits. Now they're five digits, like my number is 40442. So that's a good way to show like how many people have joined in all the years. The Legion's been around since, actually, this is our 25th anniversary. So the Legion's been around since 1997. Are there some guys with really low numbers that love that fact? Oh, yes. We have a guy who is in our group. He has been in the Legion since, I believe, around 1998. So almost 25 years. Do you have any idea what his number is? Because what's the lowest number? I have no idea what the lowest number is. Right, like if you're collecting cars, you know, oftentimes you're like, this is serial number 0001. It's the very yeah. first card. I don't think we have a 01, but I'm not sure. I have to look at that one day, see what the lowest number is. 
Well, good luck out there recruiting. Thanks oh, for yeah. joining us here on the Black Hall Podcast. Thank you. Really appreciate it. We're learning a lot about Momocon, and, and you're helping us. All right. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. Back here at MomaCon, and we have Tiger Lily joining us. Tiger Lily, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. So you're dressing up with Anton Line, right? Tell me about what the Anton Line is. So it's Atlanta Network Technologies. They've been in Atlanta for over 30 years now, and we sell premier technology. Uh, actually, at my booth, we have an entire streaming setup with everything that's available on our our website. We're mainly online, so that's where the online comes from. Got it. Okay, so Anton Line is an actual company. Right. But then what are you dressed up as? I'm actually Tifa from Final Fantasy VII, the remake. Uh, one of our partners is Sony and PlayStation, so we're trying to hype up, you know, all the PlayStation games because we are doing giveaways here at Momocon. That's exciting. You've got this giant sword. Yes. That's part of your outfit. What's your character? Who is the character? So I'm Tifa Lockhart. Uh, I actually would love to dress up as Cloud Strife, but I'm awful at wig creation. So I decided to just make the Buster Sword and carry it around as Tifa Lockhart. But that's not normally what Tifa would carry. No, she's actually a melee character. So she uses her, her fists. She's like a boxer in the game. And if you consider it like a, a Dungeons and Dragons role, she's like the melee with fists or a monk. Like a Shaolin monk. Yeah. Who can defend herself. Right, and you can actually change the characters to heal, so she can also heal herself like a monk if she needed to. And then does she refuse to use weapons? Each character can only use their specific class of weapons, so for her, she can only use her hands, yes. So in the in the booth downstairs for Anton Line, is everybody dressed like the same? Uh, no, it's just me because I'm actually Ant Online's very... I'm their streamer, so when we go live, I want to dress up as the game I'm playing, because I try to like be immersive and... Oh, you're a gamer. Yes. You're actually like professional. Yes, I am. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I do a lot. <laughs> uh, I would define myself as a content creator in Atlanta because I love gaming and I just wanted to make it my career. That's great. Thank you. What, what, are, what are the games that you're best at? So I love MMOs, but the one I'm really into right now is Amazon Studio Games uh, New World. I'm also very good at Call of Duty, so I'm immersed in that community as well. And then anything creative, like The Sims, for example. I just, I'm a variety person, yes. So Call of Duty, what percentage of the Call of Duty population is female, do you think? I know most of the female gamers, so to me, I feel like I know a lot of them, but there's only a handful. So it's just like we're very aware of where to find each other and support each other, but it's like I said, it's a handful of female gamers. Are the boys more respectful to the women than they are to each oh, other? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Especially <laughs> Call of Duty gamers because we we require respect. Because <laughs> there's a lot of disrespect that goes on in Call of yes. Duty when it's just boy, boys talk. Right. Because when you go into a first-person shooter game, you're going to run into that. Um, and that's something we're trying to fight against, you know, uh, supporting other female gamers, trying to make sure they're not discouraged when they go online, when they try to use comms and stuff because everyone's just kind of a little toxic here or there. <laughs> I had a bunch of buddies that played uh, Call of Duty years ago, you know, maybe 15 years ago, early online gaming. And one of my buddies told the story. He would stay up late and he would play with people from all over the world. 
and they'd form these teams and go, you know, whatever. And he's on this team, and some guy runs off and gets in this helicopter and flies away without them. <laughs> and everybody starts screaming at this guy, like profanities and going nuts. And suddenly they hear this little 10-year-old's voice, sorry, guys. Yeah. And you run into that so much. Right, and he comes flying the helicopter back, and he said they were all just mortified, like the way they the way they've been talking to this little ten year old kid, which is you know the danger of online. You have no idea. Like that, who's on the that's other definitely end. one. And one of my favorite things as being a public speaker for gamers is trying to educate people on that. Like, you go online and you're going against people of different ages, different sexes. It's just like be accepting of each other, but we are all gamers, and there's just like a mentality where we're kind of feisty with each other all the time. But once you get to know a gamer, then they're really nice. It's just really weird how the online gaming community is. Is there any sort of disclosure around, like, hey, like, if you come on as a woman, do you make sure and tell the guys, hey, listen, there's a woman playing here. I want you guys to be a little more respectful. Or do they just have to figure that out on their own? No. As myself and a gamer, I will do call-out. So they have to listen to me. But I don't usually engage with random people online because you will see those comments like get in the kitchen or or be quiet, woman, or stuff like that. Oh, you get all the like really raw stuff because everybody's hiding. Yes. The, the there, there's that there's that kind of shield, you know, with the Internet. So people just think they can do whatever they want. How old were you when you got into gaming? Were you an early young gamer? Yeah. You know, being a variety streamer, I started off on Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis and it wasn't until actually I got a PlayStation that I realized games are very beautiful, like Final Fantasy. But I didn't start doing competitive gameplay until college because, you know, that's the time where you have so much bent up hormones that you need to get out and you want to connect with your friends online. So I would say I've been gaming my whole life. Where'd you go to college? I actually went to Southern Oregon University. So that's where I originate from. And I moved to Atlanta. And this is where I really like jumped into the gaming scene. The gaming scene here is pretty big. It's growing, and I want to get more involved, and that's why Ant and Lion is here with me at Momocom this year. So you encourage them to come here? Yes, I did. <laughs> Smart. Well, hey, really appreciate you joining us. Your costume looks fantastic. Thank you. What's the ultimate goal as a gamer? Um, I would love to continue making other gamers feel comfortable about getting online or finding safe communities where they don't have to be scared of being told to go to the kitchen or anything like that. Well, fantastic. Tiger Lily, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you. Welcome back to the Black Hall Podcast. We're here now with Steve Whitmire. Steve, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Steve was one of the original cast members and voices for the Muppets. From a long, many, many years ago, yes. Well, you were you were with uh, Jim Henson and those guys for, would you say, 40 years? Yeah, yeah. I started out with Jim in 1978, and uh, I was like 19. The big dream of mine since I was a kid to get to work with the Muppets, you know, and um, went straight to the Muppet Show and did pretty much everything the Muppets did for almost 40 years. It's incredible. I've been to the uh, Jim Henson Studios in L.A. a number oh, yeah. of times. Yeah. Really fantastic. Amazing. It's an amazing place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Were you also a puppeteer or a Muppeteer? Yes, yes. With the Muppets, a few exceptions, but almost always we did the voices. It was a, just a performance. We did the puppetry and the voice at the same time. And it was so it could be in sync. And then those characters, because they were so known, would go on a talk show. And therefore, the puppeteer would be able to talk live, you know. Yeah, no, that's important. Yeah. And so what characters did you play? Well, I started out back on The Muppet Show with no characters, and I did, like, assisting people with puppet hands. 
And then at a certain given point, I begin to do a character named Rizzo Rat. Now let me see. Cheese, rat poison. Cheese, rat poison. Duh. What do you guys think, I'm crazy or something? Okay. Rizzo was a character I started back in those days, and through the years, got so many things. We did a show called Fraggle Rock. Yes. I did a character called Wembley on there. Mm-hmm. And Sprocket the Dog. And, I mean, you know, so many different projects that Jim did over the years. And then when Jim passed away, uh, it was very sudden for all of us in 1990. And I began doing Kermit after he was gone. It's not easy being green. Seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water. And also Ernie on Sesame Street. Those were two of his original characters. Probably more known for his characters than for the ones that I did, even. You know. Now, were the ones you did, did you actually create those? Like, when you're working there, are you imagining the characters, dreaming them, creating, like, actually building the characters? Yes, yes. In the case of a character like Rizzo, who ended up sticking around for many years, uh, I found an old rat puppet in a box and just brought him into the Muppet Show one day. Quickly, back in the Muppet Show days, you remember the backstage areas where Kermit was at his desk and everybody went through? Yes. Jim would encourage all of the new puppeteers, like me at the time, to just grab any old puppet and get behind them in the background and do whatever we wanted to do. It was like training for us. And he would let us do whatever with whatever puppet. And one day I got this little rat and popped him into the scene, and Jim cracked up at the end of the scene and said, where did you get that terrible puppet? I said, well, it's one of yours. It was, you know, in a box over here. He said, we're going to make that rat a star. So he started this whole course of developing the character with me. He sounds like a real character himself, Jim Henson. He was a terrific person. He was very quiet, very humble, a real southern gentleman sort of type of a guy. And he had a strong vision about things. But he generally forfeited an awful lot of his own vision to collaborate. He really wanted the people that he had put around him to be a part of whatever was going to get produced. And I think it made it better. It certainly made all of us feel a huge part of what we were doing. So did you live in L.A. for a long time? Well, we didn't do very much work in L.A. in those days. I'm from Atlanta originally. The Muppet Show and a lot of our early work was done in England. So I was kind of this 19-year-old kid who'd never traveled, and I got kind of picked up by the scruff of the neck and dropped in a foreign country, you know. But it, great people. I mean, I began to work with many great people. We did a couple of the Muppet movies there. We did Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, those two films. Um, many, many things. So we had a long relationship in the UK. Was that at Pinewood? Well, a couple of films were at Pinewood. We worked at all the studios over there. There's a great studio called Bray, which is where they I know Bray. shot Rocky Horror, which was a big deal for me because I was a fan. But, mm -hmm. you know, we'd, we'd end up working in all these places, meeting all these people and these iconic kind of character people, you know. What was the tie to England? Was Jim English? No, it was strictly because, you know, Jim started out many, many years before Sesame Street, and then he had such success with Sesame Street that everyone thought of him as being a children's performer, and he really never was. Even on Sesame Street, the early characters like Ernie and Bert were not aimed at kids. They were really characters that these were just him and his people doing funny things, you know. Happened to be curriculum, but the characters weren't for kids. So when he went to do something like The Muppet Show, he had a difficult time uh, selling that show originally to the networks here in the States. And a guy named Lou Grade came along who had his own giant production company in the UK. And he said, I'll syndicate your show all over the world if you will shoot that show at my studios in England. And I think originally there was kind of hesitation, like, oh, what a syndication, how does that work? And it ended up being one of the biggest shows ever in the world. But that was largely because he chose to do it in the UK. 
So we continued to work in the UK after that quite a bit. How much time would you have to spend there? Would it be like half the year? Yeah, it depended on the project. In a series, it would be six months at a time probably. Uh, And, you know, film sort of the same. Some of the bigger films like Dark Crystal or something like that, we would be there for half the year, whatever it took. What's going on in the world of puppeteering today? Well, all sorts of things. You know, the Muppets are still out there. They're still trying to do what they do. Things have changed a bit. Jim's influence has slipped out of it a bit, which is kind of sad. But then again, the Muppets are still there, which is wonderful. I'm trying to do some of my own stuff. You know, after all those years, it was great to think about. I was almost 40 years there. And I've kind of gone back at the moment to doing something I was doing prior to the Muppets, which was I did a local Atlanta call-in show with a puppet character. Now, back then it was a real telephone. These days, I'm doing this thing called Cave-In, which is a monthly live stream. I can only pull it together once a month because there's no budget. I'm just doing this for fun uh, with with this character who's a troll, an internet troll. And people can call in and talk to this guy. And Weldon, this character, wants to know what's the most miserable part of your life. And um, sometimes it's mostly funny. And it's all improvised, but mostly uh, once in a while we get people who actually have real things. So we get into these kind of therapy sessions, you know. <laughs> so these are real calls, like you're actually like allowing yeah. people to call in like, like and, a radio show. Yes, and in real time, so we have no delay. So they kind of, you know, we, people have been good, but they didn't have to be. Uh, and I've also produced these little two to five minute production number pieces, very much like what you might have seen on The Muppet Show, only with this single two, character. Three. Woke up this morning with caving on my mind. About once a year, I, 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 I get hygienically inclined. Took a shower, uh, brushed my teeth, got ready to go. Uh, parodies on things like Top Gun and Stranger Things. And the great thing about going to Comic-Cons is that I've been able to um, meet some of the stars of those different things, and they've agreed to be a part of the show. So we've shot pieces with some of those Stranger Things people and from Gotham and stuff like that, you know. Is there a, enough puppeteering talent in Atlanta to do a show? Like, if, if you wanted to do a show like The Muppet Show? I think so. I think so. Um, there's the Center for Puppetry Arts here in town, which is the biggest center for puppetry probably in the world. Mm. Um, and for that reason, if no other people kind of, the people in the community think of Atlanta as being a big puppet town, for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, you could do that. You know, if I had a real budget and wanted to pull together a group of puppeteers, I'm sure you could find the talent here. And the Muppets are, you know, the type of work we did was very specific. Uh, the characters, it was all about character, but for us, it was very much about the type and the style of manipulation to make the characters seem very lifelike, but whimsical a little bit over the top at the same time. I think puppetry is universal. Yeah. Right. It's, um, it's not limited by age, yes, race, religion, um, culture, creed. Right. Right. I mean, it, it really uh, transcends. That's one of the things that's so wonderful about characters like Kermit. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, it's very true. And one of the reasons why um, on Sesame Street, when Jim created that group of Muppet characters, they were all different abstract colors. It was This was in the 60s, of course. But it was a way to not identify them as a particular race, you know, so that they were just people. Yeah, it was, you know, they were you orange know. and blue. Yeah, yeah, whatever they were. You know. like cookie monster. Of course, Kermit was green. He was a frog. But mm-hmm. beyond Kermit, they really weren't identified as a, almost not as a species, although they were human-like. Yeah. But certainly not as a race. Bert and Ernie were, you know. Yeah. Certainly. Or I think of I think of obviously the old curmudgeon white guys up in the uh, opera. Uh, Staller and Waldorf. Ah, so yeah, good. yeah, yeah. You know, they were created because Jim wanted to be able to make fun of his own stuff. 
What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare, and it certainly wasn't well done. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we always saw the sarcasm in what we did. So mm-hmm. rather than have other people do it, he put two characters there to poke fun at, his, at the, um, the stuff the rest of the characters were doing. Absolutely know? genius. <laughs> every every part of society really needs that somehow. Yeah, it does. Right? To it's laugh why, at oneself. It's why there was a court jester. Yeah. Somebody, somebody needed to be allowed to make fun of the king. That's right. That's right. It's sanctioned. Sanctioned. Um, <laughs> Irony. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have always done that. And we, you know, our other saying was never let a good pun go to waste. You know, uh, if you can come up with it, light an entire bit around it, you know. <laughs> 100%. You know, of all the stuff I worked on over the years, we did this show called Fraggle Rock. And Fraggle was, I was 23 years old. I had been with the Muppets about four or five years. I was just getting on my feet. What year is this? Is this the 80s? 82. Yeah, I was going to say, I grew up watching Fraggle Rock, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I was born in 74, so okay. you know, I would have been eight years old. We all went to Toronto and did this show. And at that point, Jim was trying to create things like The Dark Crystal. So he was sort of off doing other, not doing the projects, but doing the early stages. And he kind of left those of us he trusted to run that show, to do that show. So we all grew as performers. And we got to do these zany little characters. And um, an incredible group of Canadian performers and crew and just a great time frame all the way around. So that's probably my favorite project I ever worked on. It's awesome. And uh, what's your connection to Momocon, and what have you been doing? Well, I'm an Atlanta native, for one thing, Mm -hmm. uh, and I love being here whenever I can. This is actually the first time I've been at Momocon. Uh, Us too. So a distant relative of mine who was a real fixture here at Momocon, also an author, uh, recently passed away, but prior to that, I'd see her at family gatherings, and she would say, "You should, re- you do Comic Con. You should really do Momocon." I'd never heard of Momocon, even being in Atlanta. So that's part of the reason why I'm here is because of her telling me about it. Very cool. So if Kermit were here, walking around, what might be things that he would observe? Wow. Well, I can do a little of my Kermit for you. Okay, if you like. great. Yeah, I'd love maybe, it. Maybe, maybe. I've been yeah. yelling with fans the last yeah, few days. If you can't, Let me see if this may not sound yeah. anything like no, Kermit. Because okay. <laughs> I don't do the voice that much anymore. I understand. Kermit would probably say, um, uh, listen, if you guys could just please excuse me, I'm small and please don't step on me as I walk through these crowds. Be respectful of the frog. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> be respectful of the frog. You know, when you're two feet tall. You got to watch out. Yeah. Was, was Kermit three feet tall or two no, feet tall? No, he was more like two feet, 18 inches, two feet. Oh, wow. He's a tiny little thing. Tiny little thing. Yeah. How about Miss Piggy? How tall is she in real life? Bigger. <laughs> Bigger. Kermit would tell you that, too. It's an, awkward, it's an awkward relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. <laughs> well, hey, Steve, I really appreciate being on the podcast with us. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for taking the time. Very happy to do this. Thank you, guys. This has been the Black Hall Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.